you know, this research may actually, for the first time in a really long time, actually make a difference in our lives as type 1 and type 2 diabetics. It is really hard to live with, but I know that staying positive makes a huge difference. And I am really excited about my guest tonight. You guys are not going to believe the amazing thing that she is training dogs to do for diabetics. This could change everything for a lot of us. Welcome to the Thriving Diabetics Podcast with your host, Dr. Matthew Herdert. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Thriving Diabetics Podcast. I am Dr. Matthew Herdert, as the nice lady said, founder of the podcast, thrivingdiabetics.com, Freedom from Diabetes Programs, and welcome to, gosh, I guess this is, we're actually now past hump week in Diabetes Awareness Month. If you were listening last week, you know I'm not a huge fan of Diabetes Awareness Month or just Awareness Months in general, but I will say the one thing I really do like about Diabetes Awareness Month is there's definitely an uptick in the level of activity in the DOC, the Diabetes Online Community. You know, bloggers are active and more people are in forums and people are really stepping forward on an individual and community-wide basis to share their hope and their strength and their experience, you know, not only of the the trauma and the horror of diagnosis and, you know, often the, the first couple years or the teen years with diabetes, but then how they survived and thrived through that. And that has been important to me at times, uh, recent decades, you know, when the, uh, the internet has been what it has, because I've been diabetic for 40 years. So most of that time we didn't have in, in the interwebs. But uh, in recent years, it's been a really touching and valuable thing for me. And so um, just a shout out and a, an acknowledgement, appreciation and gratitude to all those other um, people living out there with diabetes type 1 and type 2 who put themselves out there and, um, you know, are willing to be seen and talk about diabetes and their experience with that. So speaking of which, um, I've got a special interview coming up. I think I'm going to release it the week of Christmas as a gift for everyone. I did an interview recently with somebody who's fairly prominent and active in the diabetes community. Turned out to be just a lovely and fun interview, and so I think it'll be a a good holiday uh, treat for you guys to enjoy. I know I'll enjoy going back and listening to it again around that time. Along those same lines, I was originally going to talk today. Today's podcast was going to be basically uh, Thanksgiving Survival Manual. But uh, for some reason, I really felt clear that I'm I'm supposed to put out this other interview today that I'll introduce in a minute. So my plan is on Tuesday to release. It might be later uh, later in the day on Tuesday, but to release a Thanksgiving survival manual to help you guys with some real simple, easy tools to help you make it through the holiday without making yourself sick and destroying your A1C and your blood sugar and your body parts. So uh, tune in for that on Tuesday. If you got to travel for the holiday, uh, you know, make sure you download the podcast so you can enjoy it on planes, trains, and automobiles. Today, we have an interview with a researcher who mostly works in the realm of diabetes quality of life. And his work is of particular interest to me. For those of you who have been listening or, you know, listening to me on, on the YouTube channel or reading my blogs, you know, you know that my focus, not only the way that I focused on surviving and thriving with diabetes myself, but also the way that I've worked with my now, you know, hundreds of clients and just other diabetic friends, um, 
you know, over lunches and just supporting them has been to really focus on the mental and emotional levels. And for those of you who haven't been listening, my my take on diabetes is that while it is a physical condition, it is one that's fairly easily managed in this day and age with the resources of the technology that we have. There will always be a very small percentage of people living with diabetes who suffer from brittle diabetes, no matter how intense the management is, right? But for the vast majority of us, it's really a matter of doing the very simple though unfair and sucky things, but the simple things that we need to do every day to really keep ourselves in a, in a healthy range, in a healthy zone. That's how you avoid side effects and symptoms and complications. And so that boils down to what's going on for us mentally and emotionally. So I consider that this is really a mental and emotional illness and that the more right you are in your head, the less you're motivated by anger and resentment and rebelliousness against the condition the better off you're going to be because the more successful you'll be with your physical management. Now, this interview is in reference to a study that came out in August of 2014. It took a long time for this researcher and I to connect our schedules. Um, and the the upshot of the study was his, his finding was that at least some diabetics may be over-treated in that the psychologic burden of intense daily management could actually take away more from life, certainly the quality of life, than um, the side effects and the complications of not being under tight management, especially because it can take years for complications to manifest, right? So I sort of have an inherent disagreement with that take. And I consider that the work we have to do is to get ourselves to the point where we don't look at intense treatment as a burden. And I'm not talking dialysis. I'm talking about, you know, testing your blood sugar, not eating carbs. I mean, just taking care of yourself in the straightforward ways. I'm not talking about complication management. And so it was, I I really kind of had to call myself forward to be open to what he was saying and listen to his perspective and hear about the research. It turned out to be a great interview. I got to tell you guys, um, this doc had, didn't know me from a brick in the wall when I communicated, when I first contacted him and was not only incredibly generous with over an hour of his time, but was incredibly patient with me because I'd never recorded an interview on Skype before. And so there were some technical uh, hiccups in the beginning, including a there was a section in the middle where my technology wasn't working. And he just, the guy was so nice. He just sat there and basically waited for five minutes while I tried to figure out what the hell was going on and how to continue with the interview. So um, he was incredibly generous with his time. He was incredibly kind and easy to talk to, which is not always the case with researchers um, or doctors for that matter. And I say that as a doctor, so hopefully nobody takes that personally. But um, Dr. Sandeep Vijan was just, and he was just awesome. He was a great guy. Now, the quality on this interview, again, because I'd never recorded on Skype before, it was a little uh, tinny. It sounded like I was recording over the phone. I think I also had the microphone on my computer set wrong. So I did some editing today to try and make it a little bit less uh, tinny. I'm no sound editor, but I did go back and listen to it again. It still sounds obviously a little different than me here in my studio right in front of the mic, but uh, I found that after a couple minutes, I didn't even really notice the sound quality difference anymore. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy the interview. Again, lovely guy, interesting topic, and um, I'll have a little outro at the beginning there to say goodbye. Otherwise, uh, be sure and look for that um, Thanksgiving survival 
guide on this coming Tuesday. And here we are with Dr. Sandeep Vijan. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Thriving Diabetics Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Herter, and we are very fortunate today to have um, a specialist in um, internal medicine, uh, investigator at the Ann Arbor VA and professor of internal medicine at Ann Arbor, Michigan, Dr. Sandeep Vijan. We mentioned his study last fall on uh, loss of quality of life uh, as it relates to certain interventions with diabetes. We talked about it a little bit. I've been trying to connect with him for almost a year now and finally have been able to do that. He's been very generous making time today to come talk to us about this study so we can better understand what it was they were looking at and what it means for our listeners with type 2 diabetes. So um, again, thank you very much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So can you start by giving our listeners a layperson's overview or kind of a basic understanding of what you guys were looking at in the study and what you found in the study? Sure. So uh, what really drove us to think about this question was the issue that um, diabetes treatments, uh, and particularly this is the case in type 2 diabetes uh, and focusing on blood sugar control, um, take a long time uh, before the benefits of treatment become apparent. So we know that uh, treatment of blood glucose uh, and getting a little bit more aggressive with treatment of blood glucose can reduce your risk of certain complications of diabetes, uh, particularly things like visual loss and renal failure, heart attacks, and so on. Um, but if you look carefully at the studies, it looks like those benefits take probably in the order of 15 to 20 years or more before they really start to mount uh, and become significant at all. So, you know, that raises some immediate questions, which is that if it takes that long for things to become beneficial, um, but you have to basically take a treatment every single day uh, for that entire time frame, uh, the question then comes in about whether the reduction in the risk of those complications is simply worth having to take something that's a bother to you every day. Um, and of course, different types of treatments have different levels of bothersomeness to people. So, you know, taking a single pill a day might be a little bit of a hassle, but taking something like insulin uh, multiple times a day and having to measure your blood sugars and all that can be a lot, um, lot more burdensome to patients. Sure. And so ultimately, what we're really trying to do is figure out um, how those two sides of the equation, basically, or two sides of the coin balance against each other. So how much benefit you get from the treatments um, versus how much burden the treatments, uh, you know, cause to patients. Uh, and uh, to do that, we have to do some sort of complicated statistics, but uh, ultimately it's really about saying, well, we have all this data from, from various studies and how do we aggregate and put these things together um, to figure out how that balance works out. Um, you know, and this is, of course, true of any treatment in any condition. You know, there's risks and benefits and burdens to everything, um, but it hadn't really been um, investigated as quite as well as we would like in, in the case of type 2 diabetes. So in the study, one thing that caught my attention was it seems to be primarily phrased in terms of quality of life loss, but you also mentioned, um, or I saw mentioned in the study, uh, side effects of medications and things along those lines. One to me is psychological, the other is clinical. So how mm -hmm. are those balanced in the analysis? 
Right. So the so the the way we do that is um, by trying to put them on the same scale, which you know has its difficulties, of course. But um, ultimately, when you think about quality of life, we are we are we're considering two aspects: um, not only quality of life, but quantity of life. So if you think about something, so I'll just use an example. So let's say um, you have a serious diabetes complication, like losing your ability to see, or you lose you have visual loss. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not necessarily going to shorten your life. In other words, it doesn't make you die earlier, but it's obviously a big hit on your quality of life. Um, and there's actually a fair amount of studies out there, a fair amount of uh, literature that sort of says, well, this is how much loss of quality of life uh, you get from, from losing your vision. And so typically what they say is, okay, we're going to put this on a 0 to 1 scale or a 0 to 100 scale where 0 is death and one or 100 is perfect life and we'll say you know everything else is somewhere in between and so people will say you know losing uh, the ability to see is worth about you lose about 30 to 40 percent of your quality of life um, and you know that those numbers are obviously not the same for every single person um, but on a, on a more global level when they measure these things across populations they're able to get those kind of numbers and so you know, so we have a couple of things. One is, you know, we also have built into these estimates, calculations, things like a heart attack, which of course could kill you, um, and can affect your quality of life, or things like blindness, which not, won't, won't kill you, but do affect your quality of life. The nice thing about what we were trying to do, at least obviously in my view, is, is that we also try to put on the same scale um, the difficulties of the treatments. So as an example, taking a pill has a very, very minimal, if any, impact uh, on your quality of life, right? So you might say it's, oh, 99.9% of normal, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you might have some small side effects from a pill or just a hassle to take it every day, Um, whereas insulin would have, you know, particularly depending on the frequency and the type and all those things, has a higher um, rate of impact on your quality of life, and that can range anywhere from a you know, three to four percent loss of quality of life, and that's based on um, you know various studies that have really tried to quantify that well. And so, what's what I think is you know unique about this approach is is that it really puts everything on the same scale, so you can kind of just add things up and see how they compare to each other. Yeah, that's so, I mean, if you have about, to, uh, about your approach in this study. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're—I mean—we're not by the only, by only, uh, not by any means the only people who have done this kind of work. But it's the first time I think I've really—it's been looked at in a broad um, setting across, you know, many patients with type two diabetes um, because we use a lot of national type data to try and estimate these numbers. And so, um, you know, it's—it's just—it um, really comes down to this issue of you know how much a treatment bothers you versus how much you're worried about the risk of the complications of, of treatment. Uh, of uh, not being treated, I should say, basically of having high blood glucose really is what the balance is about. And anytime you're talking to any patient, you have to kind of think about both of those things, right? So, you know, we do that with, we should do that with all medical decisions. I mean, we do it very explicitly when we're talking about something like a surgery, right? If you say, well, we're going to have an operation, we actually have to fill a lot of form that says, you know, if you go under anesthesia, your chance of dying from that is, you know, one out of a thousand or one out of 500 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And this is what you'll get from having the surgery. So we, we very, you know, we're very explicit in our discussions. Um, but when it comes to things like chronic disease management and cases like diabetes, where you really have to do something almost every day for the rest of your life, we rarely talk about these things. And so this is sort of our way of trying to get a sense of how much these things actually matter. 
speaking about the the demographics in the group or the, the patient group, it seemed that you didn't work with live subjects in this study, but you drew the data from um, another study, National Health and Nutrition Examination Study. Is that accurate? That's correct. So okay. that, that's a yeah, that's a national sample of of the U.S. So it's uh, used for most national estimates. Like that's how we know how many people with diabetes um, are in the U.S. or how many people with undiagnosed diabetes are in the U.S. and so on. And so, what what degree of control did you have over choosing the demographics for this study? Uh, so, this as I said, this is a, a pure statistical model. So we have complete control in some ways. Um, but what we what we basically did was we said we are going to take all patients with type 2 diabetes um, in this survey. Um, and that is reflective of the entire U.S. population. Mm. So it, it, it's a sample, but it, it, they have direct ways to translate that into the total numbers of people with diabetes in the U.S. because um, it's to- completely representative of the population the way this is set up. So actually most of the national statistics we have on health come from this same database. Um, and so, you know, we didn't, uh, we, we did not select, um, for anything other than, um, the fact that they had type two diabetes. Okay. So in my, in my, the research I did on the, uh, quality adjusted life year, um, study, the quality, it, it seemed like as a metric, there are some argument, I mean, really like there is with any research standard out there, there were some arguments or criticisms of that as a metric to use. Do you feel that uh, any of the most common concerns with quality were relevant here? Like I, I remember one had to do with uh, older patients versus younger patients. Um, were you happy with it as a metric for the study? So I would say that it's not perfect in some ways, but it's it's the it's a situation where it's probably the best thing we have. Okay. Um, I mean, there there's some there are some you know, minor alternatives, but they're conceptually very similar. So there's another one that people use called disability adjusted life years, which is, you know, more a measure of how how well you're functioning, not just what your personal Mm -hmm. view of quality of life is. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're conceptually quite similar. And and the major criticism from my standpoint that people have had against um, qualities is the issue about um, the fact that people adapt to conditions over time. Sure. And so if you um, ask somebody in the, you know, in the broader world what they think it would be like to be paralyzed, um, you know, they would say, oh, that'd be terrible. That would be unimaginably bad for me. But if you ask somebody who actually is paralyzed, they rate their quality of life much higher than most of the rest of the world would. Well, sure. I mean, I've been doing five yeah. injections a day for decades, and to me, it's like brushing my teeth. It's not bothersome at all. So, right. Yeah. Right. And so that that adaptation question is one that's uh, not, not always very well. I would say it's generally speaking not very well addressed in the literature on the topic gotcha. um, in terms of how to incorporate that. So you know, one of the things that people you could could make a very reasonable argument about, and I think I would agree with this, is, is that you know that the way that people estimate how difficult their quality of life would be if they're taking insulin, like you talked about, it would actually be, ends up being lower. It wouldn't be as bad as they thought it would be initially. Mm. Um, of course, you can make that same exact claim about things like, you know, heart attacks and strokes and, sure, and, and sure. blindness and all that too, right? So again, yeah, there's not a perfect um, way to measure it. And, you know, th- this is one of the difficulties we deal with because, um, you know, we, we do, to really come up with the right decisions here, we need to have some sort of sense of how these things scale against each other and how they balance, and this is, as far as I can tell, the only direct way to compare things on the same scale. 
Um, you know, the alternative, and I think what, in a, from a purely clinical perspective, what we should be doing, of course, is going to individual patients and asking them what their views of these things are, mm-hmm. and then trying to balance those. But that is very time and labor intensive, so hard to do. In, in right, a, translation in a, very expensive. Minute visit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, so. Were, were there, um, like, it, your your experience as the lead on this, were there limitations that would make you want to revise or repeat this? Are there plans to repeat this study in a different way or on a different scale or with a different patient base? Uh, not necessarily. Um, so what I'll say is, is, I mean, this is in the context of related studies we've done for a, a long time, you know, dating way back to when I started, uh, mm-hmm. you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, what's happened over over time, and the reason we did it at this point is, is a couple of things. One is, is that our ability to do these kind of modeling um, studies has improved because we've gotten more data, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we have many more studies on diabetes and its relationship to outcomes and how much benefit there is to lowering somebody's blood glucose. Um, and there are a few more studies about things like the quality of life um, estimates. Um, but what's interesting is, is that um, if you, you look at this under various parameters, this is not um, all that different from what most people have sort of concluded, but it's not something that's talked about a lot. Um, and that's the issue that, uh, you know, for, for some people with type 2 diabetes, um, the benefits particularly of getting very intensively controlled are very small. Mm-hmm. Um, while for others, they're quite large. And, you know, that's sort of step one of the process, right? I mean, you need to know how much benefit an individual is likely to get. And that was sort of one, you know, one side of this equation that I talked about. Um, and I think if you look at most of the people who have tried to do this kind of work, and that includes investigators like at the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, and, and, uh, and the NIH and others, um, they've all kind of found the same thing, which is that there is quite a lot of variation in how much benefit people get. Um, and a couple of the things that really primarily determine that are first is how old somebody is, um, because as I mentioned, if there's 15 to 20 years before benefits become apparent, then the older you are, the less likely you are to see those benefits. Sure. Sounds a little cynical, but it's logical. Um, and the younger you are, the more likely you are to get the benefits. So, you know, the younger people who, who get diabetes, which is unfortunately happening more and more these days, um, will get more benefit from intensive control. Um, the flip side to that, of course, is, is that then you have, if you try and consider the burdens of treatment, then those have a lot longer to accumulate in the younger people because you have to take it every day forever, right? Of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, you really are, like I said, this is kind of weighing the two sides of the coin, of the, of the scale, two, you know, both sides of the scale here and trying to figure out how these things balance. And um, I think our study concluded or fits in pretty well with most of the studies that have tried to look at this kind of idea. Um, you know, but what we've done relative to most others is really used a more national population base to try and estimate these numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so the best um, other study that I've seen that's really tried to account for these some of these things came from a group of uh, investigators in Chicago, um, and they kind of did some similar methodology, um, but um, there's a few differences. The biggest one being that they only collect, you know. Um, did this in patients in inner city Chicago where they were working and stuff out of Chicago. Um, and it's interesting because this is a good example, but the people um, who they see in their clinic who are mostly, were mostly women and mostly African American um, had much, much higher rates of thinking that both the complications of diabetes and the treatments were way worse than what the general population seems to think. Mm. In other words, you know, they thought that having to take insulin would be just horrifically terrible. I mean, you know, two or three times worse than what people in the broader population seem to think. 
Um, but they also thought that the risk, you know, things like kidney failure and blindness were also much worse than most of the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that highlight, and I think what you were sort of talking about with different populations, is the fact that, yeah, different people are going to have different views of this. Well, not and to so, mention differences in education from patient to right. patient. You know, I mean, yeah. I get people in my yeah. programs all the time who, you know, their doctor is advising them to keep their type ones, whose doctors are advising yeah. them to keep their A1C around seven, which to me is um, borders on criminal. <laughs> it's just yeah. an opinion, but yeah, yeah, because that's obviously going to affect people's take on uh, burden. Right. And, and that's absolutely right. And so, again, the, you know, ultimately, while we're, you know, while we're trying to get a sense of how much um, benefit there's going to be, and we're using more population-based models, you know, we try to, you know, get a little bit into the more individual level of, levels of detail, understanding that things like how bad people think these treatments are um, is going to have a huge impact on how much benefit they get overall. Right. So, yeah. not surprisingly. The less bothersome these treatments are, you know, if people really think it's no big deal to take insulin, then they should probably go ahead and take it and think about going for reasonably tight control. Um, on the other hand, if it bothers them, you know, even more than just a, a little bit, well, a little bit more than a little doesn't make sense, but more than a little, um, then it may not be very beneficial for them. And of course, you know, the, some of the things in some of our, our figures try and get at that, where we're looking at different ages and different levels of burden in terms of the uh, of, of the treatments. And so, you know, it really comes down to the fact that ultimately all of these things need to be individual decisions. And um, one of the things we always struggle with, and um, we're a group of people who do a lot of sort of health policy research, mm-hmm. is that a lot of the ways that um, that we're measured on how well we're doing, you know, doctors get graded on these things, um, you know, really don't take into account any of this fact that there is a lot of variation in how people view these things and that not everybody would necessarily choose a treatment if they knew how much benefit there was versus how much the burden of the treatment was. All right, so we really think these need to be personal decisions um, and that we shouldn't have policies setting people that, to sort of force people to do things that they wouldn't necessarily want to do. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does make sense. I, I have to admit, I have sort of mixed feelings about it because I don't think people are always able to um, make the best choices for themselves with a long. I mean, the reality is, is even looking at the research, if um, cardiovascular issues aren't going to manifest in the average diabetic for 15 years, that also depends mm-hmm. on your environment, your personal, your family history. You know, did you work in a plant with lots of chemicals? I mean, there's so many things that impact that it could end up impacting somebody in five or six years. So I think giving people one of my, I guess, beefs in um, diabetes education in general is that I feel like as physicians, we make a lot of compromises in our recommendations to patients, assuming that we're kind of picking a middle ground to compromise so that we'll get some degree of compliance. And I think Mm -hmm. it's, I think it's for people's highest good to really give them the ideal and encourage them to strive for that and then give them the best support we can for that. So I hear what you're saying, but I, uh, and I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that it's sometimes more complicated in my, in my head. So uh, along those lines, one of the things that occurred to me and looking at the study was that uh, with the exception, arguable exception or um, slanting or uh, migration within some demographics, elderly people of African uh, Pacific Islander, Hispanic heritage, Type 2 diabetics are uh, largely 
faced with that condition um, as a result of a series of lifestyle choices, you know, lower exercise, sure. higher caloric or carbohydrate, uh, carbohydrate intake. So you're talking about being comfortable, really. You're talking about comfort food and not having to go sweat on a treadmill. So I would right. expect there to be a much higher uh, reporting or a much higher, much more consistent and dramatic experience of loss of quality of life in that population, particularly over a type one population. So, yeah, that's a certain, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, you know, it, uh, I think it's one of the interesting things that we struggle with. I think I agree with you in a lot of ways about as physicians. I mean, you know, we know all these things that work, right? I mean, we know that we can significantly reduce diabetes rates by exercise and diet, but figuring out how to get people to do those things is difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and to some, to some extent, this sort of that what we've done here reflects a little bit of that, except for we're talking about specific medication therapy as opposed to lifestyle therapies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's the same concept, which is, is that what what economists are will often call revealed preferences, which is what people do is actually what they want to do, uh-huh. <laughs> right? And so if if they really thought that these things were going to have a major impact on their quality of life, um, and that those quality of life impacts would be bigger than um, the negative effects of having to diet and exercise, then they would they would diet and exercise, right? I mean, if they thought that that would be worth it. Right. Um, but people seem to have a very, I, I think this is actually something that I've experienced more on a personal level, but a little bit in studies as well, is that the doctors and patients are very different in their perceptions of these things. Mm-hmm. So um, doctors are willing to look far into the future and think about the far off and, um, We'll say, you know, those things matter a lot. You know, you really need to think about the fact that in 15 years from now, you may be really, really sick because you're not doing these things. And most patients and most people in general sort of live much more in the here and now, which is that I'm not worried about 15 years from now. I'm worried about today, right? You know, and so what? Uh, it, it's an interesting matter of perspective and, you know, how willing you are to delay or to realize that things can happen enough in the future. And, and uh, this accounts for some of that. I mean, I, I see, you know, you see this all the time. And, um, you know, an example I often use when I'm talking to people about these issues is the fact that teenagers can't think about, you know, five minutes from now, let alone. 10 years from now, right? Sure. Um, you know, and so there's a definitely different perspectives on these things and how to balance that is one of the things that I really struggle with clinically, trying to explain to people that, you, you know, even for a 45-year-old who was just diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and is clearly overweight and is not eating well, not exercising, all those things, you know, trying to get them to lose weight is one of the most frustrating experiences that, that most physicians have. Well, right? We yeah, have and- had very limited success. Yeah, and it, you know, uh, uh, in listening to what you're saying, what's occurring to me is somebody who kind of walks on both sides of this line as a long-term diabetic and mm-hmm. um, as a healthcare giver is, as a doctor, it's easy for me to look 15 years into the future for any given client because I only have to look at that future for the two minutes that I'm talking to them or each time exactly. I see them for a visit, whereas they have to, they have to right. face that, they have to bring themselves forward to face that on a minute-to-minute basis sometimes. So That's right. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So, yeah, and it, it, it's interesting. I mean, this is a little bit more of a personal thing, but uh, my brother is a, has type 1 diabetes. He was mm. diagnosed at age 40, um, mm. actually, um, oddly, and uh, it's completely taken his life over. Uh, oh. You know, he's, he's, he's a very <laughs> uh, meticulous, he's an engineer, right? And so he has mm. this, he's, but it's funny because it's, it's almost seems like 
having to manage the disease has become his entire life, right? Yeah. It's completely taken over. And so I often wonder, I mean, I, I haven't sat down and asked him specifically, you know, how much effect is this having on your quality of life? But I mean, he never, he doesn't enjoy meal very, he basically eats the same thing all the time, every day, right? <laughs> you know, so he doesn't get any of that enjoyment and it's like, and he's completely panicked about even minor deviations. I mean, his A1C has been um, around 5% since the time mm. he's done Yeah, and he's never, and it's never varied, but he's basically had to, you know, it consumes his entire life. And it's always a question about, you know, well, if your A1C was six, but you got to enjoy things a little bit more, would that be worth it for you? Um, But, you know, everybody's different in how they conceive of these things. And that's what I was, uh, you know, this is sort of relevant when when I think about these types of issues. So is that part of the motivation for this study for you is the personal experience with your brother? Uh, you know, in a, in a little bit of a way, I mean, this is obviously not on type 1 diabetes, um, and of course I've had enough experience with type 2 patients who struggle with the management issues as well, but, you know, that certainly brings it home to me a little bit because, um, you know, it, it's one of those things where you're like, I try and, you know, you try and explain this to him and he's a, he's, you know, he's a bright guy and he's, like I said, he's well-educated and is an engineer, he understands all these things. Um, but he is what you what most people would call very risk averse. In other words, he's just not willing to accept any risk of a bad thing happening. Right. Um, he'll do anything to avoid that. Um, and we've seen this in other studies as well that are related. So you know there are these there's this group of patients who no matter how small the benefits of treatment will always opt for the most aggressive treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are people on the other end of the spectrum who would say, I only care about the what, uh, what, how bad the treatment is, I'm not worried about the complications. If the treatment's going to bother me at all, I'm not doing that, right? Um, and then most people are somewhere in the middle and they kind of balance those two things out. And I think that that's really, you know, interesting because when you think about, th- you know, results like what we have here, um, how patients think about these issues is uh, going to be very important in how they end up making decisions. Um, but my, ge- my, my general sense has been that, you know, when, when you, try and show numbers like these to patients. And we don't do a lot of that because, as I said, it's very time and labor intensive. But when you try and think, when they try and have patients think about this in a more research setting, um, it's often surprising um, to me, again, um, from taking the physician's view, how reluctant patients are to, to do treatments once they realize the level of benefits. You know, they're often like, oh, I thought I was going to get a lot more benefit than that. I thought I was absolutely 100% going to go blind if I didn't keep my sugar controlled, right? And so they said, that's why I did it, um, when in fact, you know, by keeping your sugar controlled, you might reduce your risk of going blind by, you know, from say, it depends, of course, how, how controlled you are, but maybe from, you know, 6% to 4% or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that always surprises people, and that's one of the other things that comes across when you look at this kind of information, um, is, you know, how willing people are to accept risk. Um, and, and so it's, uh, you know, there's a lot. The reality is, is there's a lot of unknowns about the best way to apply this type of information, and that's one of the things we're hoping to get a little bit better handle on going forward. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you. I mean, this is obviously... Um, I shouldn't say obviously. The the thing that struck me about this this study in particular is that you didn't really have the opportunity to personalize it above and beyond your experience as a doctor with the patients you're treating and your brother and his experience. But you weren't working with live models here. You were working with a data set, which probably depersonalizes mm-hmm. it a little bit. But at, at the end of this, when all was said and done, what what do you have to say to, in particular, the type 2 diabetes community about what this what this means for them i mean how 
is this a call for them to insist on more time with their endocrinologist to talk about their own personal quality of life and how the treatments are impacting them? Is this a call to take things less seriously, to take things more seriously? Well, I think ultimately uh, what I really think it comes down to is that, that, that patients should be having these discussions and thinking about these things when they're choosing treatments. Um, and, you know, it's not, I don't think you can say for any given person whether they should take things more or less seriously. It depends on the situation. And that's one of the things we're trying to convey a little bit here, which is, is that, you know, it doesn't just matter um, that there might be a risk reduction. You know, the size of how much reduction you have in risk and the size or, or of how much burden you have from the treatments, all those things need to be balanced out. Um, and I have. I mean, I, I agree that uh, we didn't take this to individual patients yet. Um, that's one of our goals going forward is to try and, you know, make this in a more easily communicate this type of information to patients and actually get a sense of what their views are, you know, and try and understand the kind of things that make them think in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that might be because, you know, sometimes we might say, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You're actually very, very high risk and, you know, avoiding these treatments may not be a very good idea for you. So, you know, are there ways that we can modify these things to make you understand it better so you realize that this is a big deal? And then, of course, there's the under, other end of the scale, which is like, you know, your control's reasonable. You know, let's say you're able to use 7.3 or something like that. You really don't need to worry about getting into exactly 7 because that's a very small benefit and you're going to have to take another drug, you know, every day forever. So, um, you know, really what it comes down to in my view is that we should be talking to our patients and patients should be talking to their doctors and trying to understand, you know, how much benefit they're likely to get from a treatment. And then they should be communicating to their doctors about, you know, that treatment is something I really don't want to do because of X, Y, and Z. Or, you know what, maybe I'm willing to do that if you explain it to me and sort of say, well, this is why you need to do it and this is how much benefit you're going to get. Um, but we really don't talk to patients that way very often. Um, as I said, the only time when I really think we do is when we're talking about something like that seems very short and immediate and big, like a big surgery. Or chemotherapy um, or something. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But even there, i got to tell you, they don't, they don't go through the details. You know, I can tell you from you know, personal and family experience, they don't really get into that level. I mean, they'll say, oh, yeah, this is the, these are the side effects of the chemo, but they don't tell you that, you know, if you take the chemo, your chance of surviving the can- surviving this cancer goes down, you know, it goes up from, you know, 20% to 30% or whatever, right? It, right. It's not that explicit. And, you know, sometimes people might get those numbers and say, wow, and you're telling me that I'm going to have to, you know, lose my hair and have nausea and vomiting and everything, and it's, no, it's by no means a guarantee, right? And so, um, you know, it's hard to explain that to patients, and patients don't always want to hear it, but that's the reality of how things work. And so it's uh, important for us to, you know, basically communicate better. Well, I found, you know, I found for myself with um, uh, both the clients I've coached more on the psychology of diabetes as well as Mm -hmm. uh, people I've talked to about the management of diabetes, that the things people relate to more are not being exhausted all the time, having more energy, you know, being able to play with Mm -hmm. their grandkids or what have you. So while it's, I think, important for them to understand what some of the potential long-term consequences are the the side effects and the sequela of diabetes um you know getting them on that level they can relate to which is you know if you if you got your blood sugar down from 220 to you know 80 you'd feel like a whole new person tomorrow yeah. so it's that's that immediate payoff like it, i mean it's just human nature 
Right. No, I, that, and that's exactly that sort of short-term thing that I was talking about, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people aren't making these decisions based on the long-term view. So, I mean, right. I think the one place, I, I mean, this is not, I mean, I've seen anecdotes, as you have, you know, of people feeling a lot better when they have sugars under a certain level. But, of course, if you go too low, then they don't feel very well either. And so, you know, again, finding that balance is important. And so, you know, like for the example you just gave out, say, yeah, you don't want to be a 220, but, you know, you might feel really pretty good if you're 140, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the question is whether going down to 80 gives you additional benefit or does it just make you feel hypoglycemic, right? So that's always, you know, just it, there's that level of thinking that I think is really important. And I agree. I mean, if you if we had, you know, a clear sense that people felt a lot better in the short term, then this would be much more simple. It would be a lot easier to get people to say, you know what, we should just do that, right? So, I mean, we'll never argue, for example, that we should let people's A1C be above 9, right, because they're going to feel terrible at that level, right? But the question then is really, well, you know, how much better do they feel at 7 versus 8 or 6 versus 7, and, you know, you know how low do you really need to go, and that's, that's an, um, what we're trying to sort out here. Well, I appreciate all your work on it. The, the last question I have for you, which is more personal curiosity than anything else, is uh, whether you were challenged in funding for the study, because I can't imagine a study that's encouraging people to take fewer pharmaceuticals is the easiest thing to fund <laughs> out there. Well, so or, or might end up encouraging people to take fewer pharmaceuticals. Yeah, it's actually not as bad as you might think. Um, I don't really get any funding from pharmaceutical companies um, at all, so it's more from uh, you know government and policy funding. And so they're interested in these topics because you know there's the issue of that we're, what we're really, you know, in a global sense interested in is getting the treatments right. In other words, getting the right treatment to the right people, the people who want it, the people who would benefit from it, and so on. And so um, the idea is, is that from a policy perspective, not only do you want to get people in who are very high risk and want to improve them, but you also don't want to over-treat the people who really don't get much benefit. Um, and so we're really about you know, getting the right treatments, appropriate treatments to the right people. And so from a policy perspective, there's a lot of interest in that, particularly because we spend so much money on treatments that may not be warranted for certain people. Um, and so I think when we're saying, you know, we're really trying to get this, you know, we're just trying to hit the sweet spot if you really want to put it in simple terms. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I think there is a lot, of, a lot more interest in that than you might expect. But you're right, not from the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> it's kind of counter to their their hopes, right? The more treatment, the more people are in treatment, the better for them. Yeah. But uh, that's not necessarily always the right way. So. Yeah, 41, 41 years, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. look, um, as, I, as I shared with you in our emailing, my, uh, my real approach to working with diabetics is working on the mental and emotional level. So I was very mm -hmm. excited to see that somebody was doing this kind of work. And um, Dr. Vijan, not only do I thank you for your time today with our listeners, but also for um, working and dedicating part of your career to really trying to find the best way to, to take care of my people. So thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, blessings to you moving forward. If you ever have anything else to share with the audience, you're always welcome back on the show. It'd be a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. Wasn't he just a lovely guy? Imagine I had to get him to wait for like five minutes in the middle and he still hung with me for the rest of that interview. So come visit us at thrivingdiabetics.com. Join the mailing list. I've got two complimentary ebooks you can download from the homepage. If you read one, read the other. If you haven't read the other, read the one. You'll get updates on new blog posts, podcast episodes, YouTube vlogs. And think, who do you know with diabetes who needs support? Please make sure you tell them about the podcast. Send your comments, ideas, questions to Matthew at thrivingdiabetics.com. And remember to check back on Tuesday for the Thanksgiving Survival Guide. Have a great weekend. 
Go out there and thrive.